and welcome to the Seahawks 360 podcast, a Sports Ethos production. I'm your host, Candace Higgins, and it's always a pleasure and it's a privilege to talk Hawks with you. I hope you guys had a very, very merry holiday uh, coming to you after Christmas. It's been a very interesting turn, uh, a couple weeks, I'll say, for the for the Seahawks. They have let everyone down. I think a lot of people are disappointed about the turn with which the season has taken. They lost to the 49ers 21-13, to and then again to the Chiefs 24-10. to And I gotta be honest, I did do a 49ers reaction video on Ted Talks Ball again. And given the quick turnaround and knowing they're facing the Chiefs the next week, I got to be honest, I just didn't have a preview in me. <laughs> I'm just be honest with you guys. If there wasn't much I could think of to preview that game because it was such a steep mountain to climb, knowing the weather conditions, basically the coldest game that the Seahawks have played, especially this particular group. Um, I think it was like negative six degree weather, if I'm not mistaken. Going into Arrowhead, which is always a tough place to play. And knowing that this offense didn't really have anything to hang its hat on and neither did the defense. Yeah, yeah, you could say run the ball. It's going to be a ground and pound kind of game. But the offensive line hasn't given any push at the line of scrimmage, at least in recent weeks. We just haven't seen that out of the run game. And... It's prevented from them to really have any sort of ground game. Between that and the injuries to their running backs, it just has not been there. Well, you could say do a shootout with Patrick Mahomes, but we all know that's a fool's errand. And there's no way Geno will be able to keep up, especially given the injuries to Tyler Lockett. There was just no way I could frame this for any positive manner to put together a game plan, keys to the game, keys to victory, any of that. For that game. So I'm coming to you guys after that game. And I'll say this. I expected this team to lose for the to the 49ers and to the Chiefs. Those were two losses that I marked down. And if you listen to my previous podcast, you heard me say that then. So I always knew these games would go like that. That doesn't really surprise me. What does disappoint me more than anything is just the injuries late in the year that the Seahawks have faced. Losing Tyler Lockett, Abe Lucas went down in the Chiefs game. Uh, Must have lost Gabe Jackson. He was out because Phil Haynes played quite a bit in that game. And and more. It was just the news was just released that Will Disley is out for the season officially, so he's gone. And. Yeah, it doesn't make me feel that encouraged about the Seahawks' abilities to win out the next two games. I felt confident initially that they would be able that they would lose those next two games, but they would win their final two games. And that's not going to be easy. It's not impossible, but it's also not going to be easy, especially given the Rams' resurgence with Baker Mayfield and given that it looks like the Jets will have Mike White back that's their most competent quarterback, and they may be able to get some things going against this defense that has struggled. But I didn't want to come on here, and I didn't want to be negative. That's not what I wanted from this episode. So what I want to do is take a step back, and I want to revisit where we were in the season at the beginning of the year. Because I think a lot has been lost 
in the ups and downs and the emotions of a season. And that's understandable. That's part of the fan experience, I think. But I want to keep everybody with some perspective. The Seahawks are exactly where they need to be. They are exactly where they should be. I'll say it again. The Seahawks are exactly where they should be. And that's if they lose the next two games. They are exactly where they should be. They're better than what they should be, actually. Going into this year, not many people expected this team to win more than three games. This team was widely considered to be one of the worst rosters in the NFL. And it proved that it was not. It proved that it was really one of the more promising rosters in the NFL, in fact. And that's in due large part to an excellent draft class, but also a great foundation of a DK Metcalf and, and, and Tyler Lockett receiver combo of a Noah Fant tight end combined with Will Disley combo of some real defensive firepower. The loss of Jamal Adams was felt all season long, I feel, but Quandre Diggs, we'll talk more about him later in his recent pro bowler signed Quandre Diggs. We'll talk more about that as we go on. But this roster had foundational pieces I saw talent from the beginning and then you added in the depth of what the draft class was able to give this roster the holes it was able to feel what these rookies were able to become for this team even if it was only for half of the season I do think the rookies have hit a bit of a rookie wall especially the off the offensive linemen the tackles I think they've hit a bit of a rookie wall that's understandable but I think they'll be better for this experience so Candace why would you say that even if the Seahawks don't win another game, why would they be where they should be? Again, keep it in perspective. These guys weren't supposed to be this. And they've already surpassed expectations. Geno Smith has outproved expectations. Pete Carroll has outdone expectations. And it's not just about expectations, though. It's not just about what they, what others expected of them. So let's 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 get let's break this down. Let's break this down. There were people going into the season that were team tank. Right? A lot of people just said, go in, if you're gonna lose, lose, be bad, get the number one overall pick. I was never in that camp. And I'll tell you why it's a good thing that the Seahawks weren't in the tank camp. Because that's not no matter even if they lose these next two games, the Seahawks didn't tank the season. They were competitive, they were a promising team, and they made some noise. They got people's attention. It wasn't a tank team, right? Why is that for the best? Well, because that means the rookies did nothing to contribute to winning. That means Tariq Woolen, Kenneth Walker, Abe Lucas, Charles Cross have all proven to not impact winning in any significant way. In fact, you might have lost games because of them. And while that's understandable, wouldn't you have a lot more questions about this roster if Tariq Woolen had never shown to be good? Wouldn't you have a lot more concerns about this team if Kobe Bryant had not shown any impact whatsoever? Like I said, if Abe Lucas and Charles Cross had been busts or had been pretty bad the whole year, if you had not seen any flashes from them. Going into this draft... Would you really feel good about the team? No. 
if DK Metcalf, you just paid him and he wasn't able to do anything. I know people, some people are disappointed in DK, and I understand that. But if you if you didn't get anything from Tyler Lockett and you felt like he was aging, that's what would have had to happen for this team to be that bad. Everything would have had to go wrong. Everything. And whether it be because they just got too injured the whole year that you couldn't get a full evaluation picture, that wouldn't be good because then you don't know how to evaluate your future. And it wouldn't have been good if they tanked it because they were just that bad. The talent was just that devoid. Yeah, you get a higher overall pick, but that's to fill one position, two if you trade down maybe. And you'd still have all those holes on the roster. You don't feel good about going into the draft not really. You feel excited about the having the number number one overall pick, but you don't. You know that you've got a long way to go. I'd rather be 10, 11, 12 picks down and know that there's a promising foundation and that you're just adding to a foundation that already exists, not trying to build it from scratch. Another thing, another reason why they should not have tanked. Because it creates a losing culture. It, it demotivates your guys. You don't get the best from the guys week in and week out. They don't understand what it's like for this, for games to mean much. That's not, with, a, with such a young team, that's not the kind of atmosphere you need to truly cultivate talent. Competition must exist, not just amongst the roster, but amongst other teams. Football is a competitive sport, and to play half of a season out knowing that it means nothing is the opposite of what development you need to get from this rookie class. This rookie class is only great if they meet their potential, right? Tariq Woolen is only great if he meets his ceiling. Abe Lucas is only great if he meets his ceiling. Same thing with Charles Cross, Kenneth Walker, and all of the rest. They must meet the potential of what you see now. This year, all of you have seen as promise, and that's how it's supposed to be. They're rookies. But how much promise can you really get if they have no reason to work toward anything else next season? How, how motivated can they be? I think the value of these games being meaningful goes so far, whether they win or lose against the Jets and the Rams, it's inconsequential, inconsequential in the long run. Because these games mean something. If they want to get in the playoffs, they must win. And whether they succeed at that or whether they fail at that, the opportunity, the pressure that comes with that, the weight that comes with that, playing to big moments and understanding what it takes to play to big moments. You can't even, if you're not put in those positions, you don't understand what it's like to win or what it takes to win if you're not in put in the position where you have to win. Right? That's how it works. They've got to have that experience. You can't simulate that. There are plenty of talented players who just haven't learned how to win as a team yet. That's a huge step to, to overcome. So for the rookies and the young players to get that experience now, to grow together as a unit with that experience, all together as a class, it's invaluable. And it's it'll give you so much more in the long run than tanking ever could have. It's never the answer. So, 
That's why they, it was best that they shouldn't have tanked. But I'll tell you, it's best that they didn't stay on that hot streak either. Right? At one point, the Seahawks had won four in a row. They were looking hot. Defense was looking better. I mean, they just had a month of real domination is what it looked like. Well, Candace, why in the world would you say it's best that they didn't, that they, that they went cold? Why would you say it's best that that faltered? I think it's for the best because it was always fool's gold. I think if you go back and look at the opponents, you've got more context to those wins. Arizona Cardinals are bad, right? Giants, not looking so hot. Chargers, yeah, that was legit. But that was it. A lot of those wins just were against quality opponents. And had that continued, I think it would have blinded the public. I think the front office and the coaching staff in particular could have talked themselves into this working, the defensive schemes working, the defensive personnel working. I think no matter what happens, win or lose these next two games, whether they make the whether they squeak into the playoffs or not, it is obvious and clear the holes that are in the roster. I think it's clear and obvious that there are personnel issues because they don't have any other answer, but really that they just don't have the talent. <laughs> like the players are basically, they just, they knew what was about to happen. Ryan Neal specifically said it in the 49ers game. They knew what was coming, but they couldn't do anything about it. That speaks to talent. It is obvious and clear that no matter what happens because of this losing streak, because of this second half faltering they're aware of what truly this roster is you can't move forward in a proper way under false pretenses if they were to have continued that streak here's what could have happened i think maybe puna ford is re-signed do you want to see puna ford back on this team i know for sure i don't he's not a bad player he just doesn't fit this new scheme and that's apparent now because of the because of the the crumbling. They did they did a couple of defensive adjustments to make him look better, but that was a band-aid. It didn't fix the actual problem, which is just that Puna Ford does not fit the new defensive scheme. Cody Barton, anybody trying to keep Cody Barton around? But that's another guy. You just don't you want it obvious that you gotta move on from guys. You don't this team has a tendency to prioritize re-signing their guys. And they'll pretty much use any just any means or justification to do it. But I think it's unavoidable. You can't ignore. They can't ignore that. And that wouldn't have happened had the Seahawks continued to, to win. Uh, to win these meaningless games against the Raiders. Had they won the Raiders game. Had they run the Panthers game. Yes, it was disappointing that they lost those because they should have won them. But that emphasizes all the more reason why they need personnel upgrades. Couldn't be avoided at that point. Another thing, and it's, it speaks to the same thing what I just said, but it's more specific. I believe they would have overpaid for Geno. Geno's market would have been sky high. Had Geno kept playing in the first six weeks like he played in the second half of the year. But Geno's shown his limitations 
It's on tape. And that's not to say Gino was what everybody thought he was because he's not. <laughs> no one thought anything of Gino. And so he still surpassed expectations. He, but you do still see that he's not the quarterback of the future. I think that's obvious now. I think people were blinded by the winning and how good he looked in certain moments. And I think, once again, opponents mattered. But also, I think Geno plays better in warm weather. That's just what I'm suspecting. I think the colder it gets, the harder it is for Geno. Understandable, but I just think that's something that you got to take into account when you're talking about paying him. Now you see his limitations, his interceptions increasing, him being more turnover prone. Those things are real. And I think they've impacted his market. So now maybe instead of a floor of $30 million, maybe there's a floor of $25 million or even a floor of $20 million with heavy incentives to get you up to 25 27 something like that. I can see that. That's more reasonable. If you're going to keep Geno, that's what you should pay because you've also got to build the roster around him. You, now people don't think that G, that Gino is the future, that you can just re-sign him and that he's a franchise quarterback. I don't think people mistake Gino for a franchise quarterback anymore. And he would have gotten potential franchise quarterback money. That would have been a mistake. You needed to see Gino falter so that you can understand what his limitations are before paying him. Because what the worst thing would be is that they went on this hot streak, they ended the year, they made the playoffs, they lose in the first round because that was that was going to happen no matter what. And then you go keep the squad because you feel like you got it together. So you pay Geno, and then you see the second half of how Geno's looked, his, his limitations, you, they show up next year after you paid him the money. Wouldn't that be worse? Yeah, I think that'd be worse. <laughs> I think the same thing with, with Puna. You do that bad day fix, it works for the rest of the year. And then you find out, after you've paid him, that he just doesn't fit. Right? This stuff has got to happen now. Or it's really good that it happened now. Also, along those same lines, I think the draft goes differently. If the defense looked credible, if the defense looked like it was, you know, living, it was living off of takeaways, a lot of takeaways. And yes, they'd gotten better at the run defense, but they were still holes. But let's say they keep up the pace of takeaways which they had before and they think the defense isn't as much of an issue. Are they looking at what, what, what then becomes a top priority? What were the issues that you thought were the main issues in week eight or week seven, I'll say? Probably the center position. I mean, the center, the interior line, <laughs> I think I think that was a challenge that was pretty apparent at the time. Does that become a bigger priority? Wide receiver was a, a big talking point at that point because Marquise Goodwin had not yet developed and stepped up the way, you, the way you've seen him now. Does that become a bigger priority? And then you completely miss out on the opportunity to take the defensive lineman, a Jalen Carter, a Will Andrews, potentially. Now, that's not guaranteed, right? I mean, they could still feel good about that line and feel and decide they need to upgrade. But I am saying that how they draft 
they're going to draft based off of some of the holes that they see, at least to some extent. Now, you do want to take best player available, but there's a balancing act, right? Because when you you you, you don't want to, a luxury of positions. You want to make sure that, yes, while you're taking the best player available, you're also considering what how to build your roster properly as well. And I think that that, that them continuing that hop streak would have prevented them from doing it. I think at the time, you'd feel like the running back position was fine. Back in week seven, nobody was worried about the running back position. Well, now maybe it's a little bit more of an issue, right? Maybe you get Kenneth Walker or somebody else, another high-quality guy who could start in a pinch for you. And what that is to the draft or through free agency, there are going to be some great running back free agents. That's something the Seahawks probably need to look into that maybe they didn't before. And so this team is exactly where they should be. They're in the middle. Where they're, they, they're, been, they've been, they're in the position where they've been competitive enough to be playing meaningful games down the stretch. Whether they won or lost those games, the experience of playing meaningful football that impacts your potential future to be playing to get into the playoffs is valuable experience, just as valuable as playing in the playoffs. Now, if they win the games, great. Then they get playoff experience. And you just got to hope that they don't get embarrassed. That's pretty much all you got to hope that they do. But but they make, if they make the playoffs, then hey, they, they win these two games, they win out. Then they get playoff experience, meaningful playoff experience. But here on out, win or lose, it's a win-win for this team. The Seahawks needed to be competitive enough to create competitive culture, to play meaningful games, and to lay the foundation for the future. But they didn't need to be so good that they lost out on opportunities for draft capital and resources, that they, you know, because it's, it's never, maybe they eke out and go to a second round. But, and then you find out about all the holes next season. That would have been the worst case scenario. Find out the holes this season. Find out what this roster truly is from a big picture standpoint, not being deferred or not not being overestimated in any sort of way because I think we I think everybody overestimated how good the roster was you can truly evaluate it the good and the bad for what it is and what it can be and it leads for a much more promising second offseason going into year two of the rebuild this leads for a much more promising offseason than what would have happened had everything just gone right it would have just been an eraser or a blinder to what was really underneath the surface. So that's the good news. I, I know it's hard to keep a, keep a good spirit about the Seahawks these days with as much losing as, as, as they've been doing. But trust me, the Seahawks are where they need to be. Now, leaning into the positives, we got a lot more positive to talk about because the Seahawks were awarded four Pro Bowlers, which speaks to the talent on this team. So we'll get into who those four, four Pro Bowlers are and why they were nominated to the Pro Bowl next. So for the 12th straight year, the Seahawks have at least three Pro Bowlers on the Pro Bowl roster. An incredible accomplishment and just speaks to the success levels that this franchise has had in recent years, a long way past from the days of the Seahawks of the 80s and 90s. So we'll get into each detail. There's, there's a light of excitement 
uh, but let's start with our let's start with our old heads, so to speak. So the we'll start with the the ones who have already been to the Pro Bowl. Let's start off with Jason Myers, who has had a surprisingly good year. Jason Myers catches a lot of crap, I think, from Seahawks Twitter, uh, as he's very inconsistent from year to year. But this has been a phenomenal year for him. This is his second Pro Bowl. The last time he was he was given the nod for Pro Bowl was 2018. But this year he was he is 16 of 17. He is 26, sorry, of 27 on his field goals. He's six for six on field goals of 50 plus yards, which is a really incredible feat. Um, he leads the league in field goal percentage, and he's actually tied Stephen Stephen Houska's uh, his record for the most 50 yard field goals in a season. So it really has been an incredible year from from Jason Myers. The Seahawks are going to have an interesting choice to make in terms of if they want to re-sign him or not. Uh, Coming off this year, I'm guessing he probably won't be particularly cheap given relative to his position to reacquire. But he has been known to have a good year, then bad year, then good year, then bad year. And so the question is, if you're the Seahawks, do you want to invest in that? Do you want to buy in on his upside and just deal with a down year or what? Or can he be consistent for two years in a row? Who knows? Uh, So... But congratulations to Jason Myers, a uh, well-deserved, unexpected um, Pro Bowl vote for a uh, Pro Bowl night to him. And then there's the ever-controversial Quandre Diggs, who was not voted in by the fans, actually. He was voted in more by the coaches and the players. This is his third straight Pro Bowl, and a lot of people would argue that he he earned those Pro Bowls the past two years, but that this has not been a good year for him. And, and I would agree. I think in a lot of measurements, this has been a down year for him, but I don't think he's been as bad as people think. I think Quandre's had to make up for a lot of the talent and the lack of talent and lack of experience around him, and sometimes he makes mistakes along the way. I think his mistakes are more egregious, and I think people hold him to a higher standard now than they used to just because he is getting so much money. Whereas when he was a fifth round pick that they traded for, or not, well, they got him for a fifth round pick a few years ago, anything he did was gravy on top. And so uh, he has not been as much of a uh, ball hawk. Uh, I do think he has made a few business decisions after his injury. I think it is fair to say he doesn't play with quite as much aggression and speed and and all of that. I think it's, it's a little bit mental for him probably. As I think that was a pretty devastating injury for him, but I just don't think he's been as bad as people think. He's not terrible. Um, now, are there other deserving safeties? Probably this year. I think more along the lines. Me personally, I would have voted him in as an alternate, and I would have been fine with him being an alternate because, and I know people are ready to get rid of Quandre. I think people underestimate how dependent. Scheme change or not, any Pete Carroll defense is going to be dependent on a quality safety play, period. The defense falls apart without quality safety play. We've watched the years of Tedrick Thompson trying to man the safety position of Bradley McDougal. They couldn't do anything on defense. The whole defense looked completely among because they did not have good safety play. And that's just how the Pete Carroll defense is orchestrated, how he wants his coverages. Because, yeah, they in this quote-unquote Nick Fangio scheme, but that's only in the front seven. If you look at the if you look at the coverages, the secondary, they're playing the same stuff, to be honest. There's not that much of a difference in that coverage. And 
Quandre, they have him. It's more two safety stuff than the single high safety, but that's that's important to this to this scheme. Everything falls apart without that safety play. That's why they value safeties more than other players do. I mean, more than other teams do. And I understand the arguments of why you don't want to play play Quandre Diggs that money. But not only is he a leader on the field, he's a leader off the field. He means a lot to that locker room. And I think you need guys like him. You need guys with an edge in that and on that field um, who really are going to go to battle and hold guys accountable at the end of the day. So, Quandre has his third straight Pro Bowl, Pro Bowl season. Like I said, this year he had two interceptions. He had one forced fumble. He had one tackle for loss. He had his only QB hit of the his time with the Seahawks, actually, this year. He had 66 tackles and five passes defense. So it's not a bad year when you're looking at the numbers. Maybe he's maybe compared to his superior play. I also think that's the other thing. Quandre has played so superior, so elite for the past two seasons that I think a good year, like a basic good year, looks like looks terrible for him. Because everybody has such high expectations of this elite level play. The way the rate with which he was getting interceptions was completely insane. Seriously. Like it was insane. It was historic. The level with which he was getting interceptions and being a ball hawk and just being in coverage. And he gets a lot of flack mostly because people think that he's missed a ton of tackles and he's allowed a lot of big plays. And there are some metrics that would say that's true. This is his his highest passer rating allowed. This is his highest yards per target allowed this year. But I would argue he's playing with younger talent, one, and something is his job to clean up other people's mistakes. And I think that's a contributing factor when you got two very young, unexperienced cornerbacks. And especially and Kobe Bryant in the nickel position, I think, puts Quandre in, in bad positions probably pretty often. But here's some other things that people do not know, that they do not think about. Fun fact, this is actually Quandre Diggs' best completion percentage allowed on the season. Uh, he's only allowed 62.5% of his completions to be a, uh, allowed, and that's not great, but it's been worse. It's been like 66. Um, this is his best at doing that. So, you know, he gets a lot of flack for giving up big plays, but he's actually doing, compared to the number of targets that he's getting, he's actually doing a better job of that. Now, maybe he can allow less yards per play, but like I said, I think he's been put in some bad positions and it's looked like it's on him and, and all to, all the 22 says something different. Another thing that he gets a ton of flack for, the most flack that he gets for is the missed tackles. Another fun fact, this is his lowest missed tackle percentage of the of his time with the Seahawks. His missed tackle rate is 8.5%. It was 10.5% last year and 9.9% before that. That's actually a pretty significant difference. He does not have nearly as many missed tackles as he has in the past. The ones he've ha- he's had have been egregious. So, yeah, they stick in your mind a little bit longer. But, again, sometimes he's been put in bad positions. Sometimes it's all on him and he misses the tackle. But at a guy at his size, I don't think that that's more problematic. Again, expectations and situations have changed people's like, – how, how they've changed how – or what people expect of Quandre. And I think that's 
the key difference more than anything else. Like I said, I would say I'd put him more as an alternate. I think he deserves to be more in that category more than, you know, just clean making the Pro Bowl. But he's got the respect of the league and it's a cool it's a cool story for him. Um and, and give it everything that he's gone through to get to this point, um, his injury and bouncing back to still be able to be, get another Pro Bowl, especially given he didn't get the chance to participate in last year's activities. This is a really big deal for him. Now, let's get to the exciting stuff. Our first time Pro Bowlers. What's up with Geno Smith? Geno Smith officially made the Pro Bowl a phenomenal year from Geno Smith. There just can't be enough talked about, regardless as to how you may feel about him for his future franchise. If you if you're happy with him, if you're upset with him, Geno has earned every bit of this Pro Bowl and more. He has been phenomenal for this team. He has out surpassed anyone's expectations, including my own, as someone who was supportive of Geno from the very beginning. He's just out surpassed us all. It's an incredible story. He really is the feel-good story of the year and, and qu- unquestioned comeback player of the year. In my opinion, Geno so far has uh 3,886 yards, 27 touchdowns, dot tonight interceptions. He's got a 102 passer rating. That's the second passer rating in the league. Um, he's fourth in, ter- in terms of touchdowns, which is interesting because the biggest knock on him was that he just wouldn't be able to get points on the board. But come to find out that he's ranked amongst the top five when it comes to getting touchdowns. And then he's seventh in passing yards, which is still top 10. He is top five, top 10 in pretty much every major quarterback statistic. And I'm not saying that that's his, I think that's his ceiling, right? I think that's the absolute best he's going to be able to give you at any point and I think you've seen that ceiling and I think you've seen how sustainable that is over a series of a of a whole season which is not great he, he's not going to fumble into a pumpkin I think at best at worst he's a, a a low level quality starter at worst at best he can potentially be a top 10 quarterback in this league but given his age and uh, just I'm not gonna say tread on the tire because he hasn't played much I would say that yeah, there's not much ceiling there for him, and he does have limitations. I think those those limitations will hurt come playoff time if if he were to you know if you were to extend him and try to get over that hump with him. But that takes away absolutely nothing from the phenomenal accomplishment that he has. Uh, they wrote him off, but he still ain't right back. And the legend continues for him. Really happy for Geno Smith for proving everybody wrong. Um, for even proving me wrong and being just the guy. I mean, it's really hard to to really hate on Gino. No matter what happens with him, it's hard not to be happy for a guy who went through so much and really just had opportunities taken away from him. He was just he was just not put in position to succeed. And it just goes to show you how tough this league is and that if you're not put in a position to succeed, so many quarterbacks who probably could have seen success will never see that success because they just weren't put in the proper position in order to be able to make it. And finally, we're going to end off with my favorite Seahawk. If you haven't noticed, Tariq Woolen agenda lives alive and well here. I feel like personally he's a defensive rookie of the year. He won't get it because of propaganda and because Sauce Gardner likes to beg for Pro Bowl votes and for <laughs> other things. So uh, that's fine, though. He can get all the accolades because I think the better player 
long term is going to be Tariq Woolen. His ceiling is just incredible. He is a rookie pro bowler, the first rookie pro bowler in Seattle franchise history since 2005 when Lofa Tatupu was uh, awarded a pro bowl nod back in 2005. And it's an incredible it's an incredible feat, especially given the, the Legion of Boom and how great those guys were coming out of the gate. To be given that nod is just fantastic, really. It, it really is. And it changes the ceiling on this team. I really do think it having that level of a potential star and knowing that he's only in his second year. He's only, he, well, I say third. Well, this is, this is his third year playing the position. He was... He played two years at corner in college, and this is his third year playing a position in his life. He was a wide receiver at first, and he's still got so much to learn technique-wise and position-wise and just understanding, you know, play recognition and reading routes. Like, he's only going to get better, and that's why I say I take his ceiling and long-term over Sauce any day. Sauce is already a complete product that that's coming to this league, and he's already a top-five cornerback. I think Tariq's going to surpass him. In the next two to three years, I think Willen will clearly have surpassed Sauce Gardner because, like I said, Tariq wants to grow. He has a hunger to grow, and I think he will grow. This guy has just been his – he's had a historic start to his season. He is one of six defensive backs to have four interceptions in his first six games. Of course, a lot of those guys are all Hall of Fame or Hall of Fame caliber type of careers. He was amongst great company. He currently leads the NFL, um, and well, I think all cornerbacks. I'm not sure if he still leads the NFL in interceptions with six. He's got 14 passes defensed. He's got one touchdown, two fumble recoveries, 53 tackles. It's just incredible. Um, this guy really changes how you look at the cornerback class. I'm not going to say he's the next Richard Sherman because I, I think he could even be better than Richard Sherman. If he can put in the mental work and if he can stay healthy, this guy, he's going to be a star. I mean, he already is a star, but he's going to be a superstar for this team. But anyway, guys, that's all I got for now. Um, I just wanted to put some positive energy out there. I wanted to remind you and keep you in context of where this team really is, how you should be looking at the season. There's still a lot to be excited about, no matter what the outcome of these next two games are going to be. But I am back with doing the game previews. Took a break off the Chiefs game. Just wasn't wasn't feeling that one. But uh, we will do a game preview uh, as we get closer to the game approaching that. Preview the game against the Jets. It'll be a good one, that's for sure. Um, it's not exactly going to be Sauce versus Tariq, but it will be. DJ Reed's going to be coming back. I'm sure he's going to be headhunting Geno Smith uh, for a pick or something because that's just that's just DJ's mindset. He's going to come in with a chip on his shoulder, so it won't be an easy game at all. Um, in the meantime, be sure to follow me on Twitter at CandiceH901. Also, follow the show at Ethos Seahawks. Um, if you're listening on YouTube, please sure to like or subscribe. Um, give us comments. We'd love to hear your feedback. That's it, guys. I'm out. And as always, go Hawks.